This podcast was recorded Thursday, January 26th at 11.21 a.m. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Yeah, like more classified documents will be found in the offices of former presidents and vice presidents. I guess the money would be on Obama at this point. He says he doesn't have any. Clinton says he doesn't have any. You know, Dick Cheney is who I put my money on. Yeah, that's a good one. Anyway, let's talk politics. This is Snally Goster, WOSU Public Media's weekly look at Ohio politics and all those Snally Gosters or shrewd politicians who claim to be in charge, even though they are not. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mike Thompson. Coming up in the podcast, State Rep Derek Merrin says, I'm in charge of the Ohio House Republicans. Speaker Jason Stevens says, no, I'm in charge. We'll try to figure it out. Good luck to us. But first, the trial of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder is underway. Opening arguments came Monday and testimony started Tuesday in the trial that could take about six weeks. Yeah, federal prosecutors say Householder and his co-defendant, Matt Borges, led and participated in a $61 million bribery scheme to get Householder elected speaker, then get a billion-dollar nuclear bailout law passed, and then killed the campaign to repeal that law. Joining us to share his first impressions and to discuss what could lie ahead is Ohio Public Radio Statehouse correspondent Andy Chow. Andy, welcome back to Snollygoster. Hey, everyone. So set the scene for us. How crowded is the courtroom? Lots of media, attorneys. What, what does it look like there in Cincinnati? Lots of media, lots of attorneys. There are a couple of different interest groups that were very interested in following HB6 as it was moving through the House, and now they're following it on this end, too. What's really interesting about what's been going on is we're finally seeing the curtain completely pulled back to see exactly what the prosecution has and exactly how they're tying everything together. We've had a good picture from the 80-page-plus affidavit that the U.S. attorney put out two years ago, two and a half years ago, but now we're really seeing more of the dots being connected and we're seeing how the attorneys for Larry Householder and Matt Borges are gonna fight back. Yeah, Larry Householder, he did not shy away from talking to reporters, did he? That was just a, a very rare, very extraordinary circumstance where when he walked into the courtroom, I was taking pictures of him and he looked at me and started talking to me for a little bit. <laughs> then when he went inside, we were in the actual courtroom and he just brought a couple of reporters over and we started chatting with him. And at first it's just, hey, you know, we haven't seen you in a couple of years. How's it going? And then he felt very free to talk about the circumstances of the case and talk about how he's feeling and, and what he believes will happen moving forward. He says he wants to testify. He has the option. Should we expect him to testify? That is the big question mark. Even Judge Black, the, the Judge Timothy Black, who's over presiding over the case, said, we don't know if he's going to testify. It's not been clear if he's going to testify. When we asked Larry about it, it he seemed to suggest that he wanted to go take the stand and defend himself uh, while testifying. But he also said that his attorneys have been working very hard so he wouldn't have to do something like that. Yeah, you have to see how the trial goes, I'm, I'm sure. Matt Borges, on the other hand, he was he was quite chatty in the months leading up to, the, to this trial. Was he as chatty in the hallways of the courthouse? You know, he did talk to, he came much later, so the press didn't really get to have that unique circumstance of gathering around him in a courtroom and talking to him. He did chat with me a little bit 
outside of the courtroom, but he didn't want to talk about the circumstances of the case, just how life is going, and to uh, tell me that he's feeling optimistic about how things are going at this point. Uh, but they're kind of bringing, Larry Householder and Matt Borges are bringing two very different cases to the trial. They're co-defendants, and the prosecution is talking about them as if they are part of the same team in this conspiracy, but the attorneys, especially Matt Borges's attorney, is saying things like there is a universe of difference between what Matt Borges has to offer or, what, or the case against Matt Borges and the case against Larry Householder. Now, like you mentioned before, there was a referendum attempt when HB6 passed to uh, to the, an attempt to repeal the nuclear bailout, and Matt Borges was part of the team to kill that referendum. Andy, let's we, we've sort of set the table here for what the actual courthouse looks like. Let's hear what the opening statements look like. What did the prosecution say? I know you talked about um, peeling back the curtain a bit, but, you know, give us a, a quick summary of, of the basic crux of what they say they are going to prove. The prosecution started by addressing the jury and said Larry Householder sold the state house. And they the first piece of evidence that they brought up was this big spreadsheet detailing all the transactions where First Energy funneled money through dark money groups and ultimately allegedly ended up in the pocketbooks of Larry Householder, both personally and his political coffers, to help him rise to power. They they spelled that all out to the jury. And what was interesting was to see how, you know, we have all been following this for two and a half years, but how do you explain all the complexities of this case to a group of 16 jurors and that's the, sort of how the prosecution laid everything out they had different powerpoints they had pictures of everybody talking about the scheme of how larry householder rose to power with this dark money coming in from first energy and after he became speaker in exchange passed this nuclear power plant bailout for first energy that's what the prosecution is arguing and one of the pieces I thought was really interesting is uh, the other people that the prosecution said that they're going to bring up to the stand to testify. Some of those people include former legislators who say that they felt pressured by this dark money group to pass the nuclear power plant bailout. And surprisingly, a couple of former associates of Larry Householder, people that we in, in the press actually worked with, we found out that day that those people are also going to take the stand. They took in tens of thousands of dollars in payment and salary wages to work for Householder through checks that were written from Generation Now. Yeah. Uh, briefly, Andy, Householder's attorney saying this is this was nothing illegal. This was just hardball politics, and he was just trying to get a bill he believed in passed, right? They are saying that, yes, HB6 is something that Larry Householder believed in. He believed in subsidizing nuclear power. He's believed in getting rid of the green energy standards. And it had nothing to do, according to his lawyers, had nothing to do with First Energy uh, giving him money. And he, the, the interesting thing, and this is kind of what we expected, is they don't shy away from the fact that First Energy gave householder money through these dark money groups. But they're saying that was not the quid pro quo. And that's really the rub here, where the US prosecutor is going to have to make the connection and make the argument that this happened, therefore that happened. Larry Householder, uh, they're, they're, they're gonna have to make the argument that Larry Householder met with First Energy executives, sat down and came up with a plan to receive money from First Energy 
in order to pass a nuclear power plant bailout and that there was a quid pro quo there the other the trial lawyers the defense lawyers say that was not the case and that's where this is really going to get interesting and you even hear the prosecutors on the attorney on the US uh Department of Justice side saying that's not how you see things when when a bribe happens you don't hear somebody say I'm giving you this money and this is a bribe and so they're going to have to paint a picture of how that was the case, even though those words weren't used. Yeah, we have seen this in other prosecutions of high-ranking uh, politicians around the country charged with this very same crime, and they've been acquitted because it is awful hard to prove that quid pro quo if there is no smoking gun. Maybe these uh, tapes that they have, and I assume the jury will hear in the next several weeks, uh, will we'll have that, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we, we heard a lot from... In opening arguments, obviously, as well, the the on Tuesday, FBI agent Blake Wetzel took the stand. Walk us through Wetzel's early testimony and what he had to say. So Wetzel was the special agent in charge of putting the affidavit together, and he's really painting the picture and setting the scene of what's happening and how all these different moving parts work together through Juan Cespedes, who is the first energy lobbyist, to Jeff Longstreth, who is the political consultant for Larry Householder, talking about how all these pieces are going to work together and how, like you mentioned, those uh, secret recordings with lobbyist Neil Clark, who has since died by suicide, how Neil Clark had said that Generation Now is basically the piggy bank for Larry Householder. And if he was talking to uh, agents about sports betting, and if they wanted to get something through that they needed to go through Generation Now, and then there was sort of apparently a wink and a nudge at this is how you get things done. You pay money into this, and that's a signal of, okay, I can pass a bill that you want. Other interesting things, uh, Andy. The the judge admonished Householder's attorney. Were you in the court? Yeah, when that he said was that? that definitely stood out to me. There there is a moment when the U.S. prosecutor um, Emily Glatfelter was delivering her opening statement, and you could hear chatter from the defense attorneys from Larry Householder's table. You could also see them making faces and clicking pens. And she stopped once, looked at them then continued. Then a couple minutes later, it kept happening. She stopped and looked at them and then looked at the judge. And that's when the judge said, yes, I'm I'm about to admonish the defense team here for this. He said, stop making faces, stop talking, uh, act professionally. And you thought maybe that was the end of it. But then when they came back from a break, he went even further to talk about how they need to act professionally. And if they keep it up, he's going to send every member of the defense team uh, away from the court floor and leave Larry Householder with just one attorney if they don't start changing the way they're acting. I think very little happens on accident when people are at, at this level of being an attorney. But did this appear on purpose? Could you tell? Were they trying to antagonize or was it just sort of juvenile, unintentional, unintentional behavior? So... I think the big concern is they would make faces and maybe it was intentional and and who you know who who can say if it yeah, was intentional right. or not but the the fact that they make faces as the prosecutor makes an allegation the jury can see them yeah. making faces the jury can see them gasp or smirk at something and that could 
maybe be an attempt at trying to sway them one way or another. And that was definitely why uh, Judge Black admonished it, because he was saying that this is a time where the U.S. attorney, the prosecution, gets to lay out their case. And so to to sort of mess with the jury in any way seemed to be out of step. The jury... We'll get off of this, but did the jury respond at all to any of that stuff? Did they seem to laugh? Did they made faces to, back. Did they? No, it was very interesting, and yeah. and I'm not sure exactly all the rules that the jurors received before, but I was trying to read their faces, and they all had very neutral faces the entire time, and I, I thought that was pretty interesting. So a lot of them had notepads out, writing notes, following along. Wow. So you can tell that this is very serious business for them. Well, it's going to last six to eight weeks, so yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'll get this deep in the weeds every get week, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check back with you certainly about this trial. Uh, in the meantime, we'll be right back. Support for WOSU Podcasts comes from listeners. You can give at WOSU.org. Thank you for supporting digital content from WOSU Public Media. Welcome back to Snellegoster from WOSU Public Media. There was a little hooting and hollering in the Ohio House chamber at the State House this week. In what is usually a pretty boring quick session, the House voted on its rules this week, and it chose its committee members. And of course, the factions of jilted would-be Speaker Derek Barron clashed with supporters of the actual House Speaker, Jason Stevens. Great drama. This is usually uh, not a controversial topic. This is, is this is usually pretty perfunctory. The new Speaker sets his or her rules, and the House gets down to business. But not this year. Andy, uh, help us understand what exactly is happening. Well, to understand what's happening, you have to take a step back and look at the House Republican Caucus and the makeup of the caucus. There are 67 members in the House Republican Caucus. 22 of those members voted for Stevens as Speaker. More than 40 voted for Derek Marin as Speaker. Stevens ended up becoming Speaker because he was able to rally all of the support from the Democrats. But you still have the majority caucus, the majority of the majority caucus, wanting Derek Marin as the speaker. And if not the speaker, then the leader of their Republican caucus. So there's a big rift here between now House Speaker Jason Stevens and those who represent or those who support Representative Derek Marin. Now, the supporters of Derek Marin wanted to put out certain proposals, certain rules, and they're all wondering, everybody's wondering, well, how are how's policy going to get made under this rift? And we saw it in action, as you heard on the House floor, where the supporters of Marin wanted to amend the rules, amend the leadership team, and they were gaveled down each time. So they lost. So this, the Stevens coalition succeeded. As you'd expect, he is the House Speaker. He is the House Speaker, but when decisions are made on what to go on the House floor, that's usually made by the majority caucus. And so it's just a weird dynamic where, yes, you have 22 members of the majority caucus holding up the what the other 40 members of the majority caucus want. And so then they're siding with the Democrats a lot of the time. Yes, yeah, so it's going to be a bipartisan caucus if, 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 it, <laughs> if it holds true here. I mean, it seems petty by Marin. But he does have a bit of a point. More Republicans support him than Jason Stevens. So I I can see, at least in part, why he thinks he is, in fact, the leader of the Ohio House Republicans. 
it's really shining a light on something that I've always found really interesting at the state house, which is you have official rules and official laws that you have to follow. And then there are some of these unsaid yeah. rules that just kind of happen and people just fall in line for. And one of it is, all right, if somebody gets the, the vote for speaker, then everybody else just uh, ends up not fighting anymore and saying, okay, you're the speaker, and then they move on. But what if you choose not to move on? And that's what we're seeing here, where you have a big group of Republicans in the Ohio House who are saying, no, we don't want to move on. We believe that this person should be the leader of our team. Yeah, a couple odd items. We'll start with this one. State Rep. Ron Ferguson, a Marin supporter, claimed the session would be invalid. It would be not good because it started three minutes late. At start, It started at 2.03, later than the assigned start time of two minutes. Andy, you've covered a lot of legislative sessions. How many of them? What percentage start exactly when they're supposed to? I want to say I've never seen one that started <laughs> right on time. So they're um, all invalid. All these taxes we're paying, they're all invalid because they didn't start right. on time. For the flag, the, the interesting point, the interesting argument uh, Representative Ferguson was making is that he was he was bringing up invoking the same set of rules that Stevens used to gavel down Representative Williams. And so Representative Ferguson says, well, if you're going to use those rules to do that, then we should also use those rules oh. to uh, to go the other way, too. Interesting. But they continued. But they continued because <laughs> in the end of the day, the speaker is the one who has the power. A Andy, are how much lawmaking can get done with a, a divided majority caucus? Well, we're well into the month of January. We're a couple weeks into this session, and there have been no bills formally introduced, and there have been no committee hearings. This is a very rare thing. This is kind of unusual. Usually you see the top 20 bills that lay out the priority of the caucus introduced at this point. So what is going to happen, and how are they going to move bills forward? And if you, if you have a split caucus, like you said earlier, where do we go from here? And then do the Democrats side with certain members of the uh, Republican caucus in order to move bills forward? You know, and at the end of the day, the people who are really winning here seems to be the House Democrats, because if they want to sort of just keep having gridlock in order to avoid bills that they don't want to see passed, then it's working. That gets us to our Snollygoster of the Week, our namesake award honoring the shrewdest politician or political move of the week. We almost gave it to Representative Ferguson for trying to nullify that legislative session through a delay of game penalty. But that was more of a demand for punctuality, we believe, than anything shrewd. Yes, yeah, so we have to give it to State Representative Allison Russo, the House Minority Leader, the top House Democrat, who once again unified her small but mighty caucus to thwart the will of the majority of Republicans in the House. We don't know how long she'll be able to hang on, but she's hanging on for now. Yeah, if, if you, I think, Andy, you tweeted out, or maybe your boss, Karen Castle, tweeted out that the, the smile, the look on Allison Russo's face was just one of sort of... Amusement, I guess. She had a she had a grin on her face that says, I'm messing with Sasquatch here, as the commercial says. Andy Chow from Ohio Public Radio, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That will do it for this week's edition of Snollygoster. If you have a suggestion for next week's Snollygoster of the Week, you can email it to us at snollygoster at WOSU.org. As always, please leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast, And please just tell your friends about us. Until next week, for our student producer, Katie Genius, our audio producer, Eric French, and our web producer, Michael DeBonis, I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mike Thompson for Snollygoster for WOSU Public Media.